Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome to a special edition of the Feathered Desert. We're going to be talking about some groundbreaking women of ornithology. At the recording of this podcast, it is March, so it's women, Women's History Month. Boy, that is difficult to say. <laughs> and we wanted to bring to light some women who have made some amazing contributions to ornithology. And we're going to start with the 1800s, and we're going to work our way up to a current project that both Cheryl and I found absolutely fascinating. So we're going to start with Cheryl and she's got our first woman of ornithology. Yes. So when Kirsten and I pulled names out of a hat, I got uh, Susan Fenimore Cooper and I didn't have any idea who she was, but I'm just totally fascinated with her. Um, Most people have heard of Henry David Thoreau and he is considered the father of American nature writing and his book Walden. Most people have not heard of Rule Hours or its author, Susan Fenimore Cooper. And Susan's book was published in 1850, actually written in 1849, but it took a year to get it published. And that's four years before Walden and uh, Henry David Thoreau. So, and Henry David Thoreau actually mentions uh, Fenimore Cooper's writing in his uh, Walden book. As America's first recognized female nature writer, Susan Fenimore Cooper broke new ground with a book about her observations of plant life, plant and animal life. A hundred years, you're going to wince, Kirsten, but a hundred years before Rachel Carson's landmark book, Silent Springs, which puts the spotlight on how human pollution damages the environment, Susan had warned of the consequences that come with our exploitation of natural resources. Indeed, she was one of the first American writers to do so. Her book, Rural Hours, was originally published with the author's with the author list anonymously, which is what women did when they were writing in the 1850s. So it went, the author was listed as by a lady. Um, And despite Susan's initial success with her book and its nine editions over her lifetime, she is little known. Uh, Susan's writing is gaining recognition again, as today more species become threatened and climate change imperils the planet. Susan's work will bring greater awareness to nature and conservation. Who knew? Who knew? I had no idea. I have certainly read Walden, but I am going yes. to pick up a copy of Rural Hours yes. by, what was her name one more time? Susan Fenimore Cooper. Susan Fenimore Cooper. All I right. read excerpts of her book, and I like the way she writes. Nice. All right. Well, our second group, this is a group of women. This is two women, actually. They are in the late 1800s, and history has forgotten a little bit about them. But this is Harriet Lawrence Hemingway and Mina Hall. They were cousins and they were amateur naturalists and they enjoyed watching birds. And in the late 1800s, in the 1880s, feathers were in fashion. Everyone wanted to have feathers on everything that they wore. Now, these were not fake feathers. These were feathers from birds. And the snowy egret, which is a beautiful white bird that when they go into the breeding season, the males develop these 
very wispy white feathers that come out and helps him with breeding. And that's what everybody wanted. They saw that and they're like, I must have it. We must put it on our hats. We must put it on our coats, put it on our purses, put it on everything we can put it on. And that is what was happening as these snowy egrets were starting to decline. And the biggest problems were in New York and London, which is usually where fashion is driven. The millinery centers there were going through 130,000 snowy egret feathers in a nine-month period. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? They, these are pretty small Where birds. They keep up. I don't know. They were pretty small birds. And that was the question that Harriet and Mina asked. How can we possibly keep this up? We are losing these birds. So in 1886, they found out that there were about 50 different types of North American birds being slaughtered for their feathers. And when we say slaughtered, they go out, they captured the adult birds, they killed it, they skinned it, and even if they were sitting on nests, they, they left the nests. So they weren't just killing one bird, they were killing a whole generation of birds. So Harriet and Mina decided there is something we have to do about this. And these were women who were prominent in the Boston socialite scene. So they sat down and said, what can we do? And they called all of their friends and they had tea parties and they talked about it and they encouraged their friends to not wear fashion with feathers. They ended up actually getting 900 women to join their cause and it halted the feathers in fashion. And they also developed the Massachusetts Audubon Society, the first Audubon Society ever to be established here in the United States, which eventually became the National Audubon Society of today, the one that we have today. So that was in 1896 that they decided to do that boycott. And it also eventually led this push that they did to fight against these feathers also eventually led a few years later to laws being passed nationally to protect the influx of birds from other countries and the outflux of our birds. So no one could capture birds and send them away. And that was the Migratory Bird Act. So thank you, Harriet go, and girls. Mina. Yes, good job. And the snowy egret thanks you as well. That's so awesome. So our next um, pioneer is Barbara Blanchard D. Wolf. And she's from the uh, 1930s to 40s. So Barbara did pioneering research on the reproductive physiology and annual cycle of the white-crowned sparrow, that cute little bird that we get in uh, winter migrations. She is a remarkably successful example of a woman in academia during the 1930s and 40s, which was basically unheard of, when it was a man's game and the deck seemed stacked against her. As a matter of fact, they thought she was too not smart enough to study birds. Her advisor wanted her to study worms, but she was uninterested in worms. She was interested in birds, and thank goodness she was. Yes. She was born and raised in California. She cultivated an interest in a wildlife at an early age, and her early education was delayed uh, due to an illness. Um, I couldn't find specifically what was keeping her from going to school, but she was in ill health when she was younger. But that only gave her more time to observe wildlife. And not only did she observe it, but she was astute enough at that age to record it. And she saved her journals. So we have all her observations of when she was um, very young. And that's how they wrote um, some books. And that's how her observations are still fueling um, science today. She received her bachelor's degree at US, UC Berkeley in zoology with the idea of getting a teaching job. 
when that became una unattainable, she went to get her PhD. And you have to know that it became unattainable because first of all, she was a woman. Second of all, it was the depression and they were gonna hire men over a woman at that time. Right. So the only way for her to um, improve herself to actually get a teaching job is she had to get more education. So she had to keep going up the ladder. She actually did get her master's and she did get her PhD. Her research that focused on white-crowned sparrows set the species on the path to becoming one of the most intensively studied birds in the world. So why would, why would that be? Well, white-crowned sparrows are actually fascinating. For one, they're, they're, some are migratory and some aren't. And plus, they not only can migrate north to south, but they migrate east to west or west to east. So that they can take the information that they learn from the white-crowned sparrows and they can generally apply it to other birds that are similar. So, and they're um, actually easy to observe and they're not very um, spooked, easily spooked. So they're, they're an easier species to observe. Barbara received several awards in, her, in recognition for her lifetime achievements in ornithology research. Well, thank you so much, Barbara, for looking at that little white-crowned sparrow yes. and bringing him out into the spotlight. Yes. And I do know that some of her papers, you can still read her yes. research through UC Berkeley. And she recently just passed away. I think it's 2008. Yes. yes. And uh, I know UC Berkeley is very proud of her now. Of course, always after yes. we do all the oh, work, they're proud of the us. Fact. <laughs> right. Uh, but <laughs> if you're interested in that, definitely check out uh, the UC Berkeley website and you can read some of her research there. All right, coming into our modern day, uh, in 2019, there was a groundbreaking, as far as I am concerned, research project involving the island scrub jay. It was in an Audubon magazine article that uh, Cheryl actually brought to my attention, and we wanted to do a shout out to these three ladies who were some of the students working on the project, and it's Karina Mata, Minerva Riviera, and Evelyn Bobadilla. And they are working with the island scrub jay, which is a corvid that lives on the Santa Cruz Island off the coast of South California. And their groundbreaking conservation study is actually using these native birds to replant burned areas of the island. So some of you will probably remember a few years back the Woolsey fire that raged through California. It did affect the um, Santa Cruz Islands and it destroyed most of their scrub oak areas. Burned it right down to the ground. And when they were thinking, what can we do to save this particular area? It's a conservation area of concern. How can we replant this? And people were thinking, well, of course we can go and we can plant, we'll put the, the acorns down in there, but we're big and we cause a lot of traffic problems and getting a lot of people over there can destroy the environment even more. And someone came up with the brilliant idea, well, there are scrub jays there. And part of what jays do is they cache food for the year. And as we kind of all know, when we store something away, you don't always remember where we put it. <laughs> I had this problem at Christmas this year. I'm hiding my Christmas presents from my husband, and I couldn't remember where one of them was. Well, the Jays have the same problem. They actually remember about 75% of where they put the acorns, and they go back and they will eat them, but the rest of them are left there, and they're good acorns, so they've essentially been planted. 
And the scrub jays plant them in the ground just the way they need to be with the tops and the bottoms facing in the proper direction for them to actually grow into trees. This is so cool. It is amazing. <laughs> so they thought, why not use these guys that are already there? So they put out these platforms and they um, put up appropriate acorns and then they went out and they kind of called and got their attention and then they left them to do their business. And the uh, three women here that were working on it um, recorded information. They went out and put seeds everywhere and they waited to see what happened. And what happened was the Island Scrub Jay came and took the acorns and they planted them around. And it's just brilliant thinking to take conservation to the next level. Why not use an animal that's already there that already knows how to do its own job? And at the end of the article, it does mention that the next season when they came back, they did notice that it was actually working because they were seeing small scrub oak shoots coming mm -hmm. up in the areas where they had put the platforms, bringing them into those decimated areas. And so the jay is doing their job. I just think that's so cool to use nature to um, help us bring nature back. Yeah. That I mean, we should be working in conjunction with nature, and that's what these three ladies yes. did. And I was so proud to find out that there were three strong women in science that were working with these scrub jays. And uh, if you guys want to check that one out, it's in the Audubon. I'm sure you can find the article in the archives, and we will post on our show notes where you can get to that website and thank you ladies uh groundbreaking yes. women of ornithology for stepping out there writing down your thoughts like uh fenimore cooper did and stepping up and saying no to fashion just like harriet and mina did and then barbara saying you cannot keep me from studying birds and then uh, Karina, Minerva, and Evelyn for taking a chance on a novel idea. Yes. So thank you, ladies. Awesome.